So Isaiah 43:22, and as you're turning there, those of us who were in the church in the 90s remember well the worship wars. Contemporary music, driven largely by Christian radio interests, was fighting to supplant the traditional hymnody was particularly popular among those who cared not what they were singing as long as it was what they'd always sung. Churches were split apart by the worship wars. The Baptist church that I was in as a kid was. The traditional hymn, piano, and organ crowd stayed put. And the contemporary, more eager to be charismatic crowd formed their own new church. Many of us are glad the worst days of the worship wars are behind us. But I would suggest to you that the church remains today in not a war, but a crisis of worship. The worship wars were about what means the church would employ in the practice of worship. How would we worship? The more foundational problem the crisis that has still not been resolved, is what is the end we are seeking through all these means of worship? The questions at stake are not how should we worship or what makes music better or worse. It's the more foundational, what is the purpose of our worship? What's happening to us when we Neglect worship. And what is God offering? And are we missing out? If you review this morning's passage side by side with last week's, you'll notice that they have a very similar structure. Isaiah identifies a problem, a prescription, a purpose, and a result. Sorry, I couldn't complete the alliteration. In the previous passage, the problem was our need for salvation and the inability of idols to save us. We needed regeneration, and God showed us where to find it, why he offers it, and what results from obtaining it. In this morning's text, the problem is not regeneration, but revival. How can God's people be reinvigorated from the slavery boredom, and purposelessness of a lifeless religion? How can they instead enjoy life with God? Let's look at the problem. It's verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Now let's look at the problem. You've got to understand Isaiah's tone and the context of this part, or you'll miss the whole thing. 
because he says, you have not brought me your sheep or honored me with your sacrifices. But if you look closely, the problem is not that they weren't physically doing those things. They were. They were physically showing up for worship. They were physically bringing animals for the sacrifice and going through the motions. But the end of those means, the purpose of their worship, was all wrong. One pastor said, God rejects all service rendered in a slavish spirit. Another writes, God searched the inner reality of their worship. And what he found there was weariness. He's not saying that his people were not worshiping. Just that their worship wasn't really about him. We see this all over scripture. People can pile up the animal carcasses for sacrifice. In one place, it's 142,000 animals to sacrifice. But God says he's not satisfied with any worship unless the worshiper is first satisfied with him. Worship that's done out of a sense of obligation. This is what I must do for God. He calls that wearisome for him and for you. I think the great crisis of worship in the church is that we don't understand the end these means of grace are supposed to lead to. Like Israel, we approach worship as either a means of controlling God by putting him in our debt or as a means of forced repayment because we're in his. So if neither of these options, what is it? That's God's prescription. Verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jerushun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. I love one teacher's reflection that God wants his worship to set hearts free. The wrong question. But the the question we sometimes ask when approaching worship is what does God want from me? Haven't you thought that to yourself coming into worship? What does God want from me? And then we treat worship accordingly. Something we do because it's what God demands. But look back at the language I just read and ask instead, what is God offering me? Water for a thirsty land. Streams on the dry ground. His own spirit at work in our families. Generational blessings. If worship were really about giving God what he demands of us, the mechanical sacrifices of Israel would have worked. Cain's offering would have worked. But these many examples in scripture should convince us that God's purpose for worship must be something else. He's not satisfied when we check the box. He says he's wearied by it. 
And he's not fooled in the least. He knows we're wearied by it too. If the real purpose of worship is what he's offering us, then even his commands about the means of worship aren't burdensome. Think about it this way. Kids, have you ever done a scavenger hunt or a game where you had a treasure map? I did one in Boy Scouts when I was a kid where they put us in the middle of the woods and we, they gave us a map and a compass and we had to find our way back to camp. The chance to sleep indoors instead of on the bare ground was the treasure we were after. When I was handed the map, do you think I said to the guy, oh, this map is too burdensome. Having to follow these commands and coordinates and paths, I'd much rather just wander around aimlessly until I find some shelter. Of course not. The map was a blessing because it was a means to an even greater blessing at the end. What if we thought about God's commands for worship? Something like that. What God is offering us in worship is a great unburdening. He's offering us greater union with Christ, more of our guilt and shame lifted away, reminders of his love for us and his promises, reasons for hope, real brotherhood and sisterhood in the gospel, a chance to express our joy, a chance to lay our sorrows before him. In that context, with all that God is offering us in worship, even his commandments about worship aren't burdensome. He's telling us where to find water for our thirst, the bread of life, and rest for our souls. Sure, we can reject it, preferring to instead wander around aimlessly, hoping we stumble into those blessings. Or we can use the map. Approach him through the means that he has promised can be used to find the treasure of his blessing. Andrew asked last week about union with Christ, and that's at the heart of what's offered for us in worship. It's through that union, his completed work for our redemption and our righteousness that our hearts are revived Studying the issue this week, I was seriously tempted to rewrite the words on our signs and on our website and replace the word worship as the name for our morning service with instead the great unburdening, 10.30 a.m. Which part of verses 1 through 5 is unappealing to you? Is it the freedom from fear? The provision of our every need, the generational faithfulness and blessing, because what we're missing out on when we bring our physical bodies to worship but wander elsewhere in our minds and hearts are those very things. Last year, I had breakfast with a young man here in Atlanta that a Christian friend in Charlotte wanted me to meet. We talked about a wide range of things, but I remember most when we talked about why the gospel is so unappealing to many people today. He asked for my opinion, and then he was astonished when I told him that in large part, it's because people are very resistant to grace. 
And he said, I don't know anyone who doesn't want grace. Now, I understand his instinct. It seems strange to think that anyone would resist or refuse grace. But if his statement were true, every Christian church would be packed to the gills with genuine believers every Sunday. The truth is, we all really struggle with grace. We have law written on our hearts, the covenant of works baked in at creation, and therefore a rule of fairness that runs deep within us. Do you know what the greatest desire of mankind is? To save ourselves. When God comes along and says it can't be done, we resist and we resist. And then, even when, by his Spirit, we submit to his saving grace, we still resolve on the inside that we're going to pay him back with the rest of our lives. Here's the connection to what Israel's doing. When we approach worship with that state of mind, the means of grace become a means of burden. The treasure of God's blessing that should be the ends of what we do in here is replaced with things that are infinitely less freeing and fulfilling. Worship is just one more thing we're doing to pay God back. God's prescription for our problem is true worship. I hope you saw that Lauren painted a meditation for us at the opening of our sanctuary. She did a great job. Thank you. Why is it there? It's there so that perhaps each week when we see it, it will help us in our approach to worship. His beauty, his glory, that's what's offered in here. That's what's available to you when you come through those doors for worship. Not a box to check or an obligation to satisfy, but the presence of God himself. What happens in the service every week after the call to worship? After the scriptures rouse us to come worship, what's the very next thing we do? It's the invocation. We invoke the deity. Come, Lord, dwell with us, meet with us. And do you know, through the means of grace, he promises that he will. His beauty, his glory, here, Dunwoody, in this sanctuary, the beauty and glory of God. Can you believe it? I pray the verse on the door will impact our posture in worship, not to weigh us down, but to lift us up. God has made us in Christ worthy worshipers of him. As another pastor put it, turning the grace of worship into the drudgery of penance turns Israel into Canaan. What's on offer in here is a taste of the promised land. That leads us into the purpose section of the text. Why does God do it? It starts in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. 
Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be, af- be not afraid. Have I told you from, the, from of old and declared it? And you are my witness. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest, he makes into a god, his idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? What is God's greatest desire? Not in the way we desire, but in God's desire. It's to be known for who he is. He desires for the world he's made to know him as he is known within himself, within the Trinity. He says it again and again. Verse 6, besides me, there is no God. Verse 7, who is like me? Verse 8, is there a God besides me? And then, as he's done before, he compares the idols to himself. And he uses a great example of the absurdity of our trust in human idols. A tree made by God is cut down with part of it A man made by God makes a fire and he uses it to get warm and to bake bread and to be refreshed. God has provided for the people he's made through the things he's made. But then we get the brilliant idea. What are we going to do with the rest of this wood? I know I'll make an idol. And then the thing we made from the tree God made, we bow down to it and we say, deliver me for you are my God. It's madness. Talk about wearisome. You have to make your God. You have to worship your God. And oh, by the way, you have to deliver yourself because the God you made and you worshiped can do nothing to save you. You work, 
to make the money. You worry over the amount of money and the growth of the money. And then you have to save yourself because the money cannot save you. You give birth to the children. You exhaust yourself bending the children to your will. And then you still have to deliver yourself when the children cannot provide you the security and satisfaction you were trying to get from them. Here's the best line I read all week. It is absurd to try to derive an ultimate experience from a less than ultimate resource. It is absurd to try to derive an ultimate experience from a less than ultimate resource. In worship, God is offering us access to the ultimate resource, the inexhaustible supply, the one, the only one who can make you secure and satisfied, the one, the only one who provides refreshing water in a dry land, growth in the desert of our existence, and life to the valley of dry bones. If worship isn't reviving us, it's not the problem of worship. It's the idols we're bringing in to stand between us and the ultimate God who is offering himself. His purpose, why he does this, is because he will be known. He will be known as the God who regenerates, restores, revives, and ever refreshes his people. God is writing a story to his own glory. And we are key players in that story. Can you see the headline? Enemies of God by God made friends. Where does that kind of thing happen except in the worship of God? Horrible sins, too many to number, forgiven and remembered no more. I always imagine an interview. You know, that incredulous thing they love to do on the news. I I imagine, Jim, can you tell us what became of those proven sinners and self-declared rebels against their creator? And the guy's standing out there in the storm with the microphone and says, Well, Tom, I know this is hard to believe, but according to reports, those horrible sinners have entered into their master's joy. That's the story God's telling. And in here, we're the first to hear it. In here, we are weakly reminded and re-grounded in that story, reoriented around the work that he's doing. A great summary. He gets the glory. We taste the joy. And that's the result. Life with God. Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. 
That's what's offered to us in worship. To taste anew and to celebrate what God is doing. For a few moments on Sunday morning, insulated from the world, setting aside the things that weigh us down, we have a chance to enter into our master's joy through union with the one who saved us. This is what it means. It's one of the ways that we taste the heavenly gift, experience the glory of God that is already present with his people, even as we await the fullness of that glory that is not yet within our grasp. It also matters a great deal for our witness to the unbelieving world. We're often wondering, how are we going to witness? How's God going to give us opportunities to witness to Christ, to others? Don't forget about the opportunity of being a faithful worshiper. There's a famous story about the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. He supposedly said, that a reason that he always rejected Christianity was because he never saw the members of his father's church having any fun. This is where we come to meet God, to enjoy him, to receive the blessing that he offers. And if our neighbors never see that it matters to us, that it's a blessing to us, and that we wouldn't want to imagine life without that blessing, what are they supposed to think? You know the expression that you get out of things what you put into them. Isaiah tells us this morning that at least with regards to Christian worship, It's not at all how it works. In fact, that approach is counterproductive. That approach that I'm going to get out of worship, what I put into it, it's only going to weigh you down. Don't give to get in worship. Don't bring the proverbial sacrifices to check the box or satisfy the debt. Instead, come to worship with only your arms open to see what God offers. Get out of it what he puts into it. Because we and our idols, we give heavy loads and burdens. But his means have a better end. Life with him. Here, he offers himself. 